Tinakwea, Naomai Heidi Mai, my name is Will Appleby and welcome to Animal Matters. Today on the show I'm chatting with Christine Dorchak, President and General Counsel at Great UK USA Worldwide. Great UK is a non-profit committed to protecting greyhounds and working to end the cruelty of dog racing in the United States. It's often overlooked that greyhound racing as we know it today actually started in California where the world's first professional dog racing track was built in 1919. By 1930, 67 dog tracks had been opened. Today, greyhound racing is legal and operational in just four US states, thanks in part to the efforts of Great UK USA Worldwide. Since the American invention has had a worldwide impact, Great UK supports global efforts to protect dogs from the racing industry, and as such have worked with SAFE and the New Zealand Greyhound Protection League in our efforts to ban greyhound racing in Aotearoa. I should point out this conversation was recorded a couple of months ago when it was still 2021, so any time I mention next year, I'm referring to this year. So without further ado, here is my corridor with Christine Dorchak from Great UK USA Worldwide. Well, Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm really excited about having a chat with you and learning about the great work that you're doing in the United States. So um, welcome to the show. It's such an honor. I'm so enthusiastic about our partnership with SAFE and with so many organizations around the world that are trying to achieve the same goal that we've been working on for 20 years, which is to phase out dog racing worldwide. Totally. So could you could you tell us about Great UK USA worldwide? What is what is your mission and, and how did it start? Well, you know, Great UK started out with a big loss. Um, we were a bunch of folks with our hearts on our sleeves, with all the best intentions. We knew there were two terrible dog tracks in our state, a thousand dogs at each facility. Nobody cared about them. They were being killed. They were being sent to research labs. It was terrible. And it had gone on for years. Massachusetts, which is my home state, is one of the historic places for dog racing in the United States. We were the third state to legalize dog racing. And the, our tracks here were known as, as top tracks. Um, and everybody saw the money and they didn't think about the dogs. So we stepped in and we said, wait a minute, something terrible is happening here. Nobody's even counting the bodies. How many dogs are being injured? How many dogs are dying? What happens to the survivors? Nobody knew. So we set out to uh, expose the cruelty to the voters. And in that first attempt on the ballot with no money, uh, no idea how politics works. We just almost won. We lost 51-49 uh, in the closest election in state history on a ballot question. Uh, we were outspent five to one by the multi-million dollar track owners. And that's how um, myself, Carrie Teal, a doctor and a veterinarian um, and a reverend, got together and said, well, we almost won. Let's keep fighting. Let's reform as a nonprofit organization, a permanent organization. And we named ourselves Great 2K USA. And we said, we're going to ban dog racing everywhere. Now, 
we still had a kind of a parochial mindset because we were thinking that meant the United States. <laughs> it wasn't until 2013 that we formally took on an international role and our name grew to Great 2K USA Worldwide. So we started out with a big loss. We could have walked away and said, well, we tried, good job. You can't fight City Hall, move on with our lives. But uh, what kept in my mind was those poor dogs, they didn't know the difference between election day and the next day. They were still stuck in those cages. They were still risking their lives every day. They were sent out to race and somebody had to do something about it. So we, we kept working and kept working. Uh, we let, we worked on bills in multiple states, but we still had Massachusetts front and center. So we went back on the ballot um, in 2008, and we won overwhelmingly. And the citizens of Massachusetts voted to outlaw dog racing in 12 of 14 counties. It was a watershed moment uh, where we finally had bested the million-dollar track owners. And the beautiful part about it was that it uh, was a phase-out. And this allowed us to help adopt out the dogs as they, as they finished racing and became available for adoption. So it was just a win-win. Mm. So was that the first... Was that a first for the country? Or had there been other states that had phased out? Well, uh Prior to our formation in 2001, um, dog racing had been outlawed in uh, several states um, uh, following atrocious uh, incidents of cruelty. Dogs being electrocuted electrocuted in one state led to a ban. Um, That was Idaho. Um, Other states had past prophylactic bans. So there was no dog racing, um, but uh, citizens gathered and said, we don't want this ever in our state. So states like Maine uh, had done that. Nobody had taken on active dog tracks and said, we're going to put you out of business. And that was, that was the big thing that made the difference for us. And uh, to get a little technical about it, we decided from the very start to form as an advocacy nonprofit. So there are various types of nonprofits, and um, an educational nonprofit or 501c3, that's your garden variety shelter. And they're limited in the kind of political advocacy they can engage in. We wanted to form for the sole purpose of passing laws to protect greyhounds. That is our mission, the, and the goal is to end dog racing. So as such, we formed as what's called a 501c4 organization um, so that all of the donations made to Grade 2K USA Worldwide are going to be focused on banning dog racing. Hmm. Can you describe the life of a dog in the U.S. racing industry? Absolutely. Um, you know, greyhounds are born on greyhound breeding farms across the country, and they are uh, separated from their mothers early on. Um, at about the age of um, two or three months, um, if they're a keeper, they're going to get uh, tattooed in the ears. Um, and that's how, that's when the racing industry started to track them. So you can look in one ear and you could they have the NGA, which is National Greyhound Association number associated with the dog. And on the uh, in the other ear is the uh, litter number birth date. 
So the dogs are from the moment that they have been thought to be worthwhile of living to race. Um, you know, many dogs are simply destroyed before they ever leave the breeding farm. And this is the underbelly of cruelty that we've tried to emphasize. So from the very beginning, the business of dog racing is about killing dogs. So the unwanted dogs at the beginning, you never even hear about them. They disappear from record. In fact, they've never been in record. Um, so the, the lucky ones, um, they get tattooed, and at 18 months of age, they are sent to, to off to race. Um, and uh, when we first formed, um, there were 15 states and 49 dog tracks where they could be sent to race. But as of the end of next year, there will only be at most two dog tracks left in one state. So for this reason, the Greyhound breeders, even they have figured out their business is going the way of the, of the dodo, if you will. <laughs> and they um, have started to, and they began winding down breeding operations even before our Florida question went on the ballot in 2018. They saw the handwriting on the wall. Um, and they've been waving the white flag, um, you know, for several years now. But Florida really was the death sentence for dog racing in the United States. So where there were at one time about 40,000 greyhounds being bred in the United States, right now it's fewer than 5,000 who are being bred for racing. And even that's too much, obviously. Um, for two dog tracks, um, you know, you know there are going to be a lot more losers than winners. So there's, just to clarify, there's two dog tracks left in the entire U.S. Well, there are now, there are four in operation right now. Right. Four in three states. Okay. However, uh, through negotiations, which is another tool we have in our toolbox, we don't always go the legislative route or only the legislative route. We are talking with industry and encouraging them to wind down because it'll be a lot less expensive for them to just do it voluntarily and, and in their own way than for us to go and pass a bill or worse for them, go to the ballot. Because when we go to the ballot, they always lose. They may not lose the first time. Massachusetts, they got away with it the first time. But when we go to the ballot, they lose, and they know it. So um, for that reason, Iowa uh, is going to have its last race uh, in this upcoming May. And um, the track in Arkansas, uh, which is called Southland, which has been one of the tracks with the, the highest purse payments, a very successful track, it is still not worth keeping open. It's going to have its last race in 2022 as well. So that will leave the obstinate folks in West Virginia who want to go down with the ship. Um, they've got two dog tracks that are only um, in existence and operation because of subsidies totaling $17 million a year. Um, so obviously being from New Zealand, this may not, this may not see, seem clear or obvious to you, but West Virginia is one of the poorest states in the country. And to think that the state government would be putting $17 million in the hands of greyhound breeders and track personnel instead of in the pockets of needy people or 
putting in place social programs to help them get better jobs and education, better roads. There's just so much that could be done in, in, in poverty-stricken West Virginia, but it's there's an old boys network in place, unfortunately. And what happens is, um, and this is a little bit of the inside politics too, what the Greyhound breeders do, and they're not... They know they know a little bit about how to survive. They're pretty scrappy. They the seventeen million dollars they get in subsidies, they turn a lot of that around as political contributions to the lawmakers, who then green light the subsidies for another year. So it goes on and on and on, and everybody's getting paid off. And a dog dies, a dog gets injured. Who cares? The money's flowing in our pocket. We're not going to do anything about it. And we've been fighting in West Virginia for several years. We even passed uh, our measure in both chambers, and Governor Jim Justice vetoed it. So um, it's obstinate from the very top on down. (laughs) But we're not giving up. (laughs) So how popular in general is greyhound racing in the U.S.? Um, I suppose it's obviously going to vary quite a bit by, you know, state by state, rural or or, or on the coast. But is there any kind of interest from the general population? Um, It actually doesn't vary. Greyhound racing is extremely unpopular. Um, it was once the sixth most most popular sport, if you want to call it that. I don't, but uh, that's how it was referred to. Um, it was once the sixth most popular activity called a sport um, in the United States. Um, but uh, because of the exposés that have pounded this industry since the 1980s. People are aware of the cruelty. If they don't see it right in front of their eyes with a dog dying during a race, I mean, we're talking dogs suffering terrible, terrible injuries in front of the crowds. They suffer broken legs, broken necks. They're paralyzed. They have seizures, heart attacks. In Florida, multiple dogs have been electrocuted right in front of the crowd. This is the kind of cruelty that can't be denied by the person witnessing it, but there's a lot more cruelty behind the scenes. So the dogs being culled from the very beginning, the separation from their mother at an early age, all of these things that go into even before they get to the track, and then when they're at the track, they spend 20 to 23 hours a day in small small stacked cages. It's they're like chicken coops for greyhounds. Um, they're let out um, a few times a day just to relieve themselves in what I would call, you know, greyhound litter boxes, just little squares of space behind the kennel. They do their business. They get put back in. It's just it's very rote. Um, they're not taken on walks or something. Um, and um, a few times a month, they are uh, sent to race, and a race is 30 seconds long. So that's the life of a greyhound. And every time they get that chance to do what they're so good at, I mean, they're fast, beautiful, athletic animals, they're facing that risk of, of never coming back again. Uh, I went to visit a, a Florida kennel a few years ago, and, you know, folks in the industry are quite casual about this. Um, so I went in uh, saying that I wanted to adopt a greyhound, um, and I was allowed in, which is un, which isn't actually permissible under the rules. But who cares about rules in Florida? Um, I learned that fast. As long as you had somebody who could speak for you, you could get in. So I went in, and the kennel operator he was very casual about it all. He said, "Well, you know, here's here are the ones we've got now. You know, if you come back, you know, next week, 
some of them not, might might not be here because you know some of them don't come back after the race. That was his way of saying some of them die while at the track, or they kill them because they suffer an injury that will cost more to heal than the, the dog is worth to them. So it's all about you know the bottom line, cost benefit, and it's more about the buck than the bark, and that's what I learned real fast in this industry. That's why I knew we had to fight it hard because everyday people, they care about dogs. They, they would not let their own dog live this way. They certainly wouldn't let their dog suffer with an injury. They, they'd take that dog to a doctor. That's not what happens in this industry necessarily. Some dogs get vet care, some don't. It's up to the it's up to the kennel operator. It's very it's very willy nilly. Um, so, what we've done and what I am really happy about seeing worldwide is that groups are now relying on the industry's own records to show the problem with dog racing. So it's no longer a he said she said effort. And that was the problem with our first Massachusetts campaign. It was he said she said. Uh, We didn't have the records we needed. So one of the things we did when we first formed is we went right back into the Massachusetts legislature and we passed record-keeping laws. And we used those records against them when we went back on the ballot because it, it was clear as day what the problem was. Dogs were dying. The state was losing money. It was just a horror show from start to finish. And that's what the you know, people of Massachusetts came to see. And that's what, what's happening worldwide. Eyes are being opened because they're seeing these records and the records allow the dogs to speak for themselves. Um, so the cruelty is clearer than ever. So if you care about cruelty, you know you're, you know, you, you're going to vote to end dog racing. Now, if you care about economics, you could, like, if you don't want to see taxpayer money wasted, then you're going to want to end dog racing. There's so many reasons to want to end dog racing. If you if you care about companion animal overpopulation, because let's face it, for every greyhound that finds a home, he or she is displacing another needy animal in, in, in need of, 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 of sanctuary. So it's a terrible, terrible industry that purposefully overbreeds dogs, knowing some are going to be killed from the beginning, and the ones that survive are going to then take the homes of other dogs and cats and companion animals needing protection. It's just such a cruel business. And the more I learned about it, the more uh, motivated I was uh, to really start and focus on this. And um, one of the things I also decided early on, um, we got sued, actually. Four of us got sued for $10 million each, which is a lot of money now. And it was a lot of money in 2000 when we got sued, I can tell you. So I had worked in law firms uh, for many years before that. And I had had the idea to become a lawyer. At that point, the, I got really motivated to become a lawyer because I thought, oh my goodness, we're going to be a target. Somebody's got a need to represent us, and we're not going to be able to afford lawyers, so somebody's got to go and represent us. So I started law school. Um, my first semester of law school was the very uh, 
moment that we formed an, um, the paper, we filed the paperwork for Grade 2K USA. So we just went all in from the very start, and we knew that we were going to have to be smarter than they were. We had to know the process better than they did. We had to know the industry better than they did. Um, so knowledge is really power. And that's what I'm, I'm seeing with the UK records coming out, pounding, pounding. Australia. Now, the New Zealand campaign has been brilliantly handled. I'm, we were so honored to offer some support for that petition drive, and, and now it's taken a life of its own. Hmm. We're just thrilled about it. Yeah, it's been, it's, it's been, um, this is the closest I feel like we've ever gotten to a ban, like to have the, the Minister of Racing basically put the, the industry on notice. Um, Absolutely. To clean their act up <laughs> or face closure. And, and it's hard to see how they can because there's so much wrong with the industry. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's a pretty, it's been an exciting year for that, in that case. Um, but I guess we just have to keep, we have to keep sh- making sure that the, the message is getting across. I understand the legis- legislation seeking to ban the dog racing industry has been introduced to Congress. Could you tell us about that progress towards a ban at, at a more federal le- level? Absolutely. Well, I don't know if you uh, if you can hear it, but Brooklyn decided to be barking in the background. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's got he's, he's got something to say. He's a very big fan <laughs> of the federal bill. I can tell you right now. Um, cool. <laughs> Brooklyn is our dog that um, we we were honored to rescue from the Canadrome in 2018. We joined with Pet Levrieri and, of course, led by Anima Macau to close the Canadrome, which was the only legal dog track in China, and we airlifted. 532 dogs to safety and one of those dogs was Brooklyn uh, who is with me now and um, he's kind of cheerleading our conversation right now Will uh, he's, <laughs> the federal bill is the biggest thing we've ever uh, ever worked on I wrote the legislation a couple of years ago um, but it really took off and we got a lot of interest from the U.S. Congress after we did an expose uh, about live lure training in the United States and just, you know, as the, the same thing had happened in Australia with all the publicity surrounding the baiting scandal there, we had the same reaction here. And what we did was we jumped right into turning that that momentum into legislation. Um, we we knew that you know every day there's some new thing that grab grabs people's attention, um, and we had to act fast. So we're thrilled. We we jumped right out of the box. We filed the legislation with a wonderful sponsor in California, and uh, as of today, we have nearly 100 co-sponsors um, in Congress, and. We had a big jump in the number of co-sponsors because our wonderful friend, uh, Mark Pearson, uh, in, from New South Wales, he gave a speech before the parliament there and sent a letter to every member of Congress urging them to co-sponsor and support the U.S. Greyhound Protection Act. Because what we did with the act was, this is, this is not just a United States bill in its effect. What it will do is it will prohibit dog racing in the United States, but it will also prohibit American gamblers from betting on races in foreign jurisdictions. So we're not going to let American gamblers prop up the cruelty in New Zealand or Australia or the UK, Ireland, Vietnam, Mexico. We don't want to 
have our hands any dirtier than they are. Dog racing was invented in the United States in California in 1919, and that's that's why it's just it's just wonderfully historically fantastic that our champion is from California. It's almost like coming home again. Um, so here we are. We're we've, we're pushing ahead um, during a very turbulent time in American politics, and we've got a, a, a lot of controversy right now and a lot of division among the parties. However. What we're finding with the Greyhound issue, um, just as in Florida, where we had, you know, the top Republicans and the top Democrats working together to support our bill, we're seeing the same thing in the Congress. No matter what your political persuasion, there's a reason to oppose dog racing, and there's a great clarity about that uh, right now in the U.S. Congress. Mm. I've been reading a lot lately about how the two parties in the United States are. Um, are more split than, than they ever have been in history. Wouldn't it be amazing if this bill was was what brought them closer <laughs> together and they can, you know, move, go on to a much brighter future of, you know, collaboration and working together? I mean, it, it's not exaggeration to say that this may be the Greyhounds may be the one thing that these everyone can agree on um, in yeah. the United States. Um, caring about dogs, it's it's just part of our, our our ethos here. At least that's what we tell ourselves. I mentioned before the government here has signaled that improvements have to be made before the end of next year or else the greyhound racing industry could face closure. Um, there's a petition in the UK that was signed by over 100,000 people, which means that uh, a ban on dog racing has to be debated in the House of Commons. Obviously, there's a lot happening uh, in the United States with the federal bill. There's so much happening globally um, towards ending this industry. Um, do you feel that those international moves have resulted in a higher level of scrutiny um, on the US greyhound racing industry? Absolutely. Um, what we're opening lawmakers' eyes to is that the United States is unwittingly supporting the kind of dog racing that we would never allow in this country. I mean, we pride ourselves on being dog lovers and we had a, we have had a highly regulated industry as, you know, that's a I've heard those words many times in defense of dog racing. But the and but the, there is some truth to it in that there records had to be kept and there was some level of tracking of the dogs, at least while they were racing. After they stopped racing, that was the end of the line until we were able to change that. But there was always an understanding that um, you had to protect the integrity of racing, and that meant at least some pass at, at tracking the humane care of the dogs. Obviously, if you've had racing occurring in the United Kingdom where you don't even have to have a veterinarian um, on site for races, that's not going to be humane, is it? Um, if, you, if, if you're in New Zealand and, you know, you, you have such trouble accessing information about individual dogs, that tells you something. Um, it's the secrecy of this industry which really tells you that there's a lot that we still don't know yet, but we're still learning more, and we're bringing these facts to lawmakers. And in the United States, lawmakers are saying to themselves, well, wait a minute, we didn't know what we were getting into here. When we authorized dog racing, we thought it was all fun and games, we thought it would bring in a lot of money, but 
the industry was tracking the numbers for years. And for instance, just from 2001 to 2014, the amount of money wagered on dog racing declined by 82%. And that was before the closure of all the Florida tracks. So you can imagine, they stopped reporting the numbers after that, by the way. Uh, I wonder why. Um, So lawmakers here are saying, wait a minute. It was one thing to kind of wink and a nod, allow, allow dog racing here that was highly regulated, but we're going to now be throwing our money into races in Vietnam, in Mexico? No, that's where we draw the line. So, and you know, this is very parochial. The same argument, New Zealand lawmakers might say the same thing about American dog races. So it's the, you know, the cruelties in the eye of the beholder. But in my view, the industry is designed so that the dog always loses. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are, you know, the specifics. The fact of the matter is that dog's life depends on how much money that dog can bring in. The lucky ones make it out of the industry and into adoption. But that's a risk they're taking every single day. That's just not fair. Look, Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for all the work that you do in the United States. Um, You've had some tremendous successes. And I have no doubt that you'll have success with the federal bill. um, And best of luck with it. Well, I appreciate that, Will. Thanks for having me on the show. And I I just want to make it really clear that, you know, Grade 2K is not some sort of um, large organization, a multi-million dollar operation. We are a small group of five people. We work in a one-room office, but if we can do it, anybody can do it. If you just focus on the mission, forget about all the fancy things that other organizations have, just focus on the mission, focus on the facts of the cruelty, and keep spreading that information in a direct and persuasive way as you are doing in New Zealand, the victory will come. The greyhounds will be free. And if there's anything we as an organization can do or personally, we're here to help um, in any way we can. So I hope that we can all continue to work together and, and, and help these greyhounds and end the cruelty of dog racing wherever it is happening. Thank you for listening to Animal Matters. This podcast is brought to you by Safe for Animals, Aotearoa's leading animal rights organisation and produced by myself, Will Appleby. Make sure you subscribe to stay across Animal Matters on whatever your favourite podcast platform is. If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. Until next time, mate wa.